Greetings, podcast listener. Welcome to the Lost Map Podcast. You'll hopefully be familiar with what the Lost Map Podcast is, what Lost Map is, who we are, who is this, by having listened to our introductory episode. It's a shorter episode than this, I think, and it's got all the information you need. It's an interesting one. Okay, full disclosure, I've not actually recorded the previous episode yet. I'm sort of reverse engineering the whole thing, but I should imagine it'll have all the information you need to know about what the flip is going on. My name is Pictish Trail. It's not my real name. My real name is Johnny. But for the purposes of this podcast, my name is Pictish Trail, and I am the host of the Lost Map podcast and will continue to be your host for the next 60 minutes. Minutes. Just a quick recap of the teaser episode, which I've not recorded yet. The Lost Map podcast is a podcast about the record label Lost Map, which is based here, from where I'm recording now, on the Hebridean Isle of Egg in Scotland. Scotland. This this podcast is centred around a new project called Visitations. Visitations. I should imagine there'll be some sort of audio ident in there for that. Visitations, visitations, is a residency project in which we invite artists to come over to the Isle of Egg to record in solitude for a week. We provide some recording equipment and instruments and leave them to it, pretty much. For this first series of visitations, artists were invited to stay at Sweeney's Bothy, a single occupancy eco-cabin located in the northwest area of the island with stunning views to the neighbouring island of Ram. In addition to recording music during the week, we've, we asked the artists to document their stay with some diary entries and photos, and we record an interview with them while they're here. And we collect all of this stuff and we're going to release it via subscription. And this is where you, dear listener, come in. Come in. We're going to press up a 12-inch EP from each artist, packaged with a CD and digital download, which will contain the music that they recorded that week for the project, uh, alongside some lovingly assembled artwork laid out by our art guru, the illustrator David Gillatley, and podcast interviews such as this one, conducted by myself. In series one, there are three different artists, which means three different pieces of vinyl will be sent out over the course of six months or so. And there'll be a cheaper digital subscription for those who don't want to purchase anything physical. This podcast that you're listening to will always be free. Subscribers to the Visitations Project might get an unedited version from time to time with longer interviews. But yep, what you're listening to right now is the main podcast with all our blood, sweat and tears put into it. And it is centred around the Visitations Visitations Project. But I wanted the podcast to be a bit more than that, something that could serve as an introduction to the artists who are involved, just to give a bit of background on them. Um, What's the sheep there in the background? We live in a new music playlist world where... We live in a new music playlist world. New music. We live in a new music playlist world. world where music fans can immerse themselves in new releases constantly without any sort of context about the artists they're listening to. 
So with this podcast, I wanted to give a bit of insight to the artists themselves as people, what they listened to when they were growing up, touching a bit upon their creative process, but also looking at the manner in which they've released their music, how they've reached an audience and the considerations that come into play with that, plus their overall experiences as a musician and just also some daft chat about nothing. For the most part, there'll be two interviews with each artist involved in visitations. The first will be conducted while they're on the island and there'll be a follow-up interview which will be more focused on the music they've made for the project. So, whew, this episode is an interview with our first contestant, John B. McKenna, a.k.a. Monogonon. It was recorded during John's stay on the island in 2017, July 2017. Uh, by the way, if you're having trouble saying Monogonon, I always think of the Muppets song. Monogonon. Okay, you get it. John B. McKenna was born in Carluk in Scotland in the 1980s and moved to Glasgow when he was a late teen. He self-released the mini-album To Glass in the Blast in 2009 under his own name, alongside a single or two, before starting to release under the name Monogonon. Another mini-album called Elephant Pregnancy was released with the Glasgow Collective winning Sperm Party, followed by a full-length album called Songs to Swim To in 2011. In 2013, Monogonon released the album Family, which was his first release on Lost Map, and it was also our first release as a label. It was the album that started Lost Map, basically, and it's an amazing album much wider in scope and perhaps more fully realised than his previous output. It's a sonically ambitious record that captures the electric excitement of his full band whilst immersed in a introspective experimentalism which never sacrifices melody or structure at any point. I honestly believe that John is one of Scotland's most original songwriters and musicians and his work since family has continued to embrace that spirit of experimentalism and wonder. Over the past few years, we've had the pleasure of releasing a number of limited edition cassette releases from John. And on International Men's Day in 2017, we released his third full-length album, Kiel Men's, which is also great. John has been living over in Malmo, Sweden, for the past six years. And so you might detect a bit of that in his accent. It's quite an engaging, almost foreign Scottish accent. It's very measured. I'm a big fan of it, and I'm sure you will be too. You're going to hear it shortly. In this first episode, we discuss his middle initial, B, his approach to making music, the records that he was listen listening to as a teenager, as well as his early gig experiences, the making of his three albums. And we also touch upon his experience on the island that week, something that we're going to delve into more on the next episode. So without further ado... Please listen to episode one of the Lost Map podcast. Oh, this isn't episode one. Shit. This is episode two. Please listen anyway to John B. McKenna, a.k.a. Monogonon. We were chatting earlier about how the B in your name actually isn't necessarily always there. Yeah, it's uh, actually when I live in Sweden, it's very 
it's rare that I introduce myself as that. It's like it took hold in Glasgow, mm-hmm. and so I just went along with it. When I moved to Sweden, I just can't, it just kind of dropped away, but I hold on to it in the Scottish. <laughs> I think that's it's nice because the B part is like you were saying it's sort of like a nickname that's kind of mm. that was attached to your name from quite a sort of when you were like fourteen or something, mm. John B McKenna. But I quite like the idea of that being something where it's an alter ego, even at that at that point, you're or like a, it's a pseudonym of some sort. Yeah, some I like description. it. I like it as a, a sort of very thin barrier between yeah the real me and whatever it is i am when i make music was it, were you starting to make music at that time uh, i was starting to play guitar when i was 12 so i think i got my first a track when i was 16 so right. it was kind of around that period i think and had you were you making music under uh were you thinking about pseudonyms and all that sort of stuff at that point or were you part of a band i was never part of a band there was a lot of bands in my town but I was mostly an athlete <laughs> really <laughs> yeah so oh. I didn't have much time off to go and practice as a band it was always I'd, I was kind of begrudgingly an athlete <laughs> what was your athletic prowess 60 meters and 100 meters and what long, sprinter long jump yeah oh long jump and I was amazing until everybody else went through puberty is there a feeling of like giving up on something or kind of moving on from something? Did that cause pers- personal trauma? I think. <laughs> Sorry I think, to go quite deep in this. No, podcast. I think on some level, like, it definitely influences a lot of the way I think in music. Like, what, what I'm very. Uh, I don't want to get into a competitive atmosphere, you know. I, I went into music as a sort of way of getting away from competition and yeah i suspected as much because <laughs> <laughs> that's where that's what i was thinking when you were saying i was thinking since i've been working directly with you on records and stuff and it's been mm. interesting to see how how the records themselves come together and exist outside of expectations and i like all that sort of stuff and i think that's something i always strive for although i can never really decide if i'm really an outsider or if I just believe that I am, but I like to at least try to kind of be a little bit outsider-y. Mm. And is that something that you do on, on purpose? I think it's it's more when, when I'm creating something, I'm aware that if I'm doing something that's already been done, then I kind of move away from that part of it and try to... Not that I want to make it completely original, otherwise I would make experimental noises. Yeah. <laughs> but I would like to yeah, bend the rules of what a modern pop song can be. Mm. It's interesting to me that I find trying to create music within the conformity of the of the pop structure like a constant sort of consideration when making something. It's mm. always something you're like, oh... If you're limiting yourself within certain constructs, how can you make it as interesting as possible within those constructs hmm. without being too alienating or or too deliberately alienating yeah. without purpose? It's a, it's a hard balance to make between wanting to alienate but also wanting to draw people in. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a real conundrum, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, moving on then. So around that time that you sort of stopped being as athletic, were you starting to take music a bit more seriously around that time? Uh, and did you get really fat? <laughs> I'm 29 now, and I've started to get a wee bit of a pop belly. <laughs> It's weird because I'm actually slightly proud of my pot belly, <laughs> and every time there's a party, my girlfriend and my friends are just like, "Ah, oh, John's got his belly out again." <laughs> <laughs> so was that around that time you were doing music more, or were they kind of existing? I think there was a real coexisting around that time anyway. There was a real burst because internet came about the same time so mm. and that also came with uh, like Napster and everything and then you know I would be going people think of Napster as being like this torrenting site or whatever but I remember I was using a lot going into chat rooms I would find people who had a band that I liked going into a chat room and then just asking them what what other music would you suggest and I remember getting suggested Neutral Milk Hotel Mm. And things that, as a, you know, fifteen-year-old living in a small Scottish town, it's not—it's not like you come across these things very easily. Also, just going on labels' websites, you find a good band on Sub Pop, and then you go through all the roster and just listen to all the music and try and beat your friends to find the best new thing. That <laughs> I think that. Well, so you were competitive in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. My band's newer than your band. I found <laughs> this band first. <laughs> but I think it all started with the Pixies because they were in Fight Club at the end of the movie. Right. And then we were like, oh, what's that song? Found them. And then it ended up that me and my mate Christopher, we went to see Fugazi when we were like 14, 15 years old. Wow. <laughs> wow. We went to see them at the Barrowlands. We were standing up the front and they had the lights on the audience and it was just I mean it was amazing and the next day we were in English class and I remember I wrote an essay on a Fugazi song <laughs> and I just I mean like none of this would have happened for us living in that small town uh, if we didn't have the internet and that sort of explosion of exploration that happened mm. What was the crowd like at that? It was pretty calm you know I think there was like a very a polite mosh pit because I think Ian Mackay has a tendency to break up mosh pits right. <laughs> if they get too violent. I like to think that he could see me, a tiny Scottish boy just standing at the front barrier yeah. and he was like looking out for me <laughs> in case I got moshed. <laughs> So what were the big records around your early teens then? So that, yeah, 12, 13, 14, 15. Well, I remember, I think I bought Surfer Rosa by the Pixies because it was cheaper than the other ones. And I also had a, a naked lady on the front. <laughs> 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 and that, so that was a, a very formative album. Formative, what is the word? I think formative. Is that formative. right? Formative. I would accept also formulative because it sounds just as pleasant to say. <laughs> but I mean, if I was being honest, I would have to say 
like I listened a lot to The Offspring. I had a okay. Here we go. This is the stuff my, that I was yeah. My to cousin, get. she was a goth, and she listened to Marla Manson. I was a bit creeped out by the the CD inserts when she showed me that, but I was determined to become a mosher when uh, listening to Placebo and The Offspring, mm. <laughs> and I bought a chain. Oh really? A, a wallet chain. chain. Yeah. Oh, wow. Bag, baggy jeans. <laughs> <laughs> baggy jeans. I would tend to find something and listen to it non-stop for six months, almost as if I was like kind of trying to analyze it mm. and figure out what it is they're doing. It's something I s- still do now. I mostly listen to music in some sort of weird analytical way where I'm like, what is it that he's doing? What is it she's doing right now? What, what do they... So it goes beyond even liking it. It's like... <laughs> yeah. I just want to know what this is. So, some actually, mostly music I tend to get obsessed with. I kind of hate it for the first three listens, mm-hmm. but then there's something there that's like, okay, this is it's wrong, but it's good, and then I'll continue in that way. So, of those ones through your early teenage years, you were listening to some ska punk stuff <laughs> in addition to stuff you were just discovering mm-hmm. on. Napster through chat chat rooms, mm. and then stuff that you're finding in your later teens. Was there big records, form uh, formative records in your later teens, going into your early twenties that have kind of stuck with you? I remember when I was about eighteen, nineteen. Uh, CSS were going around; they were touring extensively. Me and my friend Sean, we got heavily into electro pop. <laughs> So we went to see CSS, and then they were DJing afterwards at the garage, and I went up to speak to her, and she gave me the CD that she was DJing from. Is this, what's her name, Lady Fox or something? Yeah, I've forgotten. I think she went out with one of the Claxons. Uh, <laughs> I've seen them as well, I remember going to a lot of those mad tours that went on. Oh yeah, the enemy sort of things. Yeah, was, I remember seeing Ratatat. Oh yeah, which the two guitar players is yeah, that that? I think so. And I just remember there was a like Panther sample. So, so a lot of electro pop stuff kind of around. So this would be like two thousand three, two thousand four. Yeah, I suppose that was actually quite big around then, wasn't it? It was seriously big. I don't think there would be any way I could have escaped <laughs> being part of that. These big records that you'd listen to in your sort of teenage years and later teens were they. Are these other records that you are embarrassed or proud of? And would you you still listen to those sort of things? I don't really listen to a lot of things that I listen to. Every so often I'll listen to Nirvana uh, in utero Mm. and I'll be like, whoa, you know, that was really formative for me, early teens, Nirvana. Yeah, in utero I think is an album that still could surprise surprise me or I'll listen to it and I'll be like ah right I understand something they were doing that I didn't understand when I was younger. It's a funny record to listen to that one because I came to Nirvana a, a bit later after all this, you know after he died and everything I mean I was aware of the songs beforehand but I was too young to really appreciate it but then hearing the big tunes of Nevermind and then actually hearing the everything other than Heartshape Box on in utero. Mm. It's actually quite surprising to hear a band 
the, the production even on that record sounding mm. so raw so and sparse, so yeah. different to something that was really yeah relatively speaking very polished on, mm. on Nevermind and quite sort of MTV mm. friendly it's and the same that still shocks yeah. now to think that they would make yeah. that kind of decision yeah I think it's a big part of why it still stands mm. the production of it basically we the guy who recorded Family was very inspired by what's his name Steve Albini Albini mm. <laughs> uh, so that was actually a big part of when we were recording it he was like kind of obsessing over getting a Steve Albini drum sound oh really <laughs> yeah which I was all for because I yeah because of In Utero it was definitely the big part of recording that the way we did kind of live and you know it's quite it's quite sparse in that same way and it does have a Steve Albini drum sound <laughs> um, well yeah certainly on tracks like uh, what's it Bina Daughter hmm you can you can feel mm. that influence uh, on, on the, yeah the second half of the that record mm. actually on family you can uh, you can hear that Albuni drops <laughs> out. <laughs> multi-track in your mid-teens and you were writing and recording songs Hmm. were you performing these in front of anyone at this point I think I started recording and I was very heavily into Bright Eyes so I was I was trying to be the next uh, Connor Burst and then the first time I ever played for anyone else it was in a bar that's called Laurie's and it's gone now, it was in the Merchant City and it was as part of like a open jam with all fiddle players and everything oh my god and (laughs) I went there and played these like teenage uh, teenage heartbreak uh, songs and there was was people like fiddling along just jamming off your tunes yeah (laughs) it's very funny to think of that and how old? Sorry, you might. Have said, well, how old were you about that? Time? I was sixteen. I think. God, right. That's a so that's a pretty young age, kind mm. of going up there. And did that kind of? Did you continue going to that night? I think I did that once, and then I think I was sending CDs everywhere. But I think it was when I moved to Glasgow, and yeah, some of my music got to uh, the owners of stereo or mono and stereo and then they gave me a gig at this event called hey you get off my pavement i played that yeah Uh, it ran for a few years actually didn't it yeah i played the second one right yeah it was massive for me because i was playing like on the same bill as like the twilight sad who were at that age of being like 19 20 they were like maybe everyone's biggest idols in my group you know were like whoa this music's coming from 
So were they on Fat Cat at this point? Have yeah. They've been signed, right? Yeah. Wow. I think it was pretty recent, though. I'm right. not sure. But also, that band, the, the Salvo, played. And I remember seeing. Pick masks. Yeah. And I remember seeing <laughs> that happening and being like, what the fuck is this? You know, I was just like, who does this guy think he is? And then they've honestly, like, that record they made, for me, I still. I was looking at I it still downstairs. To it. Uh, Craig from Rock Action sent me a bunch of, of stuff. Mm. Uh, and uh, I was just looking through CDs the other day, and they had seen the pig, the hmm. horrible pig mask photos that they had inside. Pretty abrasive yeah. record, and but it's ama- a, an amazing, amazing record. Yeah. It's like I lo- I take every opportunity to show that to people in Sweden. Just like, oh, check out this this band from Scotland. Check out the riffs on this. <laughs> I think also seeing them live. I remember one time I seen them live, and I think I smiled through the whole show. It was like that Fugazi feeling again of just seeing something that is so technically amazing, but also real. You know, like he's walking around the audience with a megaphone, and his presence on stage is un- undeniable. There's a it's terrifying performance yeah. happening, right? Yeah. yeah, and he also kind of like dances like Beyonce you know and I've read <laughs> you know he'll he'll kind of do a striptease with a pole or it's kind of like I've heard him talk about that like how why it's abrasive and, and how it was for him growing up as a homosexual man in the 70s and 80s and I mean I just think it's it was amazing to see that. It's a shame that they're now gone. <laughs> they were on the Hey You Get Off My Pavement. They book. were. Oh, they were? Yeah. Oh, right. That's, Holy that's why I discovered them. And I was like, yeah, I was totally offended by it. Right. <laughs> but I didn't, I wasn't actually watching it. I was sitting inside mm. and he came all the way from the stage inside. And I think he was carrying a hammer. Right. And I was just like, what? You know what? I was terrified, you know, and I, I was offended that somebody would terrify me. <laughs> but then I seen them like three years later and it was an amazing experience. So mm. it's that thing of hating things at first and then, you know, desiring to understand what it is. And The hating came out of a, a place of not understanding what it was or maybe yeah. fearing it a little bit. Yeah, fear, uh, definitely always pushing against fear. So when you were doing these first shows, you were performing under the name John B. McKenna at this point, weren't you? Mm. And I think this is when I kind of first became aware of your stuff was around about this time because you were one of the first people that I was aware of that was doing music videos. And they weren't just music videos, they were like, some of them were little sketches (laughs) that then became performances. And it was in the sort of... I'm trying to think when I first... Because YouTube's not that old. Yeah, but it was it was YouTube. So it must have been just when YouTube started, yeah. which is like only like 12 years ago now. Yeah. So I suppose it you would have been 17, 18. Yeah. At that time. Yeah, me and my mate Sean made it in his garden. Yeah. <laughs> well, so there was, there was quite a few though, wasn't there? I, or maybe some of them weren't music videos. Maybe some of them were... I remember seeing Keep Me In The Dark and you doing a video for that. But... I, I have a memory of there being other videos, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think there was probably a lot of yeah, stupid videos. I remember I had a YouTube channel, <laughs> just uploaded, yeah, just 
messing about right. with a camera and just... Yeah. I've still got a lot of that footage I've been thinking about trying to use some of that stuff in performances because I have this footage from when I'm like just going through puberty and just messing about with a camera and just being an idiot. Right. And, uh, I think it would be funny to show it at the same time as performing. It's really good because there was a sort of persona that you were yeah. that you had in these in these videos. <laughs> an, a, an asshole persona. I was trying to look for some of them. Uh, and I couldn't find any of them. I've removed them all. Oh, have you? Yeah, that's why. I was trying to joke because I remember at the time thinking, "Oh yeah, those, these are these are brilliant." But you were performing at this point as John B. McKenna. Had you been performing under any other name before that or after that? Well, I mean, I was playing with uh, my mate Sean in the band El Padre. Oh yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean that was yeah, it was a lot of fun, but also. It was quite stressful. I found it quite hard, the collaboration aspect, because I would want to make things very, very fast and make it a lot. Whereas uh, the other guys were a bit more like wanting to make it right, you know, like more perfectionist, whereas I'm a a bit more like, it doesn't matter, just make it. Mm. (laughs) And also we used Ableton and it used to take like five minutes between songs to load up the next song so I would have to like chat on stage one time I remember he was rebooting Windows like oh I have to restart or <laughs> I've, ac- I've accidentally connected to the Wi-Fi and uh, now Windows is updating I need to restart the computer and it was like looking at his computer and it's like 500 of 1000 updates oh my god <laughs> and I like I think the last show we ever played, like, I think it was getting broadcasted live and then Ableton just totally went haywire. We had to stop in the middle of a song and we were just like, we can't play that one anymore. <laughs> and then, yeah, we just didn't. <laughs> so there was a lot of, yeah. So there's a performance aspect even there with the banter that you're doing in between songs and quite a... <laughs> A thing that's um, would you have any of that rehearsed or would it be sort of stream of consciousness stream of consciousness and very hit or miss just quite embarrassing see I find it, I find these <laughs> little bits hearing these stories of these things kind of jigsaws together the sort of the picture of monogonon that I have today <laughs> because there's a very sort of confrontational aspect to what you do performance wise that isn't something that it's necessarily intimidating. Mm. Oh, look, can be to some audiences initially until they kind mm. of relax. Um, I think that maybe that, like, kind of weird confidence to talk shit actually puts people at ease. Mm. Like, yeah, there's maybe one or two people who are kind of like, it, they don't feel happy with it. But I think most people kind of. They would rather hear somebody talk nonsense than somebody, like, apologising for oh, the yeah. previous song or, you know, oh, sorry, I'm I'm not very prepared. I think. But with that comes an element of actually you are performing something. I mean, mm-hmm. there is something actually happening that exists almost outside of the pre-prepared music. Mm-hmm. And that I find that quite an interesting part of 
what you do because that's also with the even with the early videos like the little sort of odd sketches and stuff that would exist and with the early John B. McKenna stuff online and now being aware of Monogonon stuff where there is the the video show the VHS show that you've been doing for the last few years and uh, how that's become an integral part of what the Monogonon identity is now. Mm. It's something that the actual performance of those songs in those way in those ways is, is a really important part of what you are now and, what, mm. uh, and it adds to the music. Yeah, I like that. I think that's something that probably came from seeing DeSalvo and just realising that there's uh, a boundary there that so many musicians aren't willing to cross into that theatre. I would like to do something that pushes my own boundaries and the boundaries of the audience as well. I don't, don't want to spit on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so then... You released a CDR. I keep forgetting what the name of it is. Two glass in the blast. Two glass in the blast. Right. Keep me in the dark was on that one. Yeah, yeah. Because some of those songs then went on to become part of our first release as a band. Devil's fingers on that. Oh yeah, so it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so is two glass in the blast, which is also on songs swim to. But then, so there was a winning sperm party CDR release, though. Yeah, it was elephant, called Elephant Pregnancy. Elephant Pregnancy, that's right. Yeah. It was okay. I kind of, I feel like it was the first time we, I did a band recording. So before that, I'd had a lot of control and a lot of time to add clarinets and accordions and stuff. And then when it came to recording the full band with uh, Duncan, I was aware of taking too much of other people's time. So I would be feeling like, oh, I want to put a clarinet on this, but I would know that would be pushing my luck Mm. (laughs) to say, now we're going to record clarinet. And also because I can't play clarinet, so I'd have to probably repeat it over. Oh, you were trying to play it? You were playing it yourself? Yeah, when I record at home, I would just record over and over until I got it right. Yeah, so we released it for free on... Winning Sperm Party's website, and I did some CDRs. Winning Sperm Party is a sort of DIY label and collective, I guess, that were based in Glasgow. Mm. They're still going, right? Is it still yeah. a going thing? So that's been actually been quite that's been quite a while that they've yeah been on the scene. Um, so yeah, that's so quite a lot of stuff happening around that time. Then you were getting mm. a lot more gigs, weren't you, in around Glasgow? Yeah. There was a lot of shows happening, and outside of Glasgow. Yeah, I was playing a lot, almost uh, once a week. <laughs> Right. I think <laughs> I played so many times uh, solo, which is another reason why I wanted to form a band. Because playing solo, I, I remember I just played supporting Frightened Rabbit and Twilight Sad in Edinburgh. And it was a crowd of like 500 people, like maybe 50 of them who were kind of interested in an acoustic singer-songwriter. And I remember just feeling that I was fighting the audience, you know, like, and I was playing loud, trying to play over the noise of the audience. And then it it got to my head and I forgot some lyrics. And I remember after that just being like, okay, I need to form a band almost to overpower. So if that ever happens in the future, I won't be able to hear it. (laughs) It's it's a marked change, isn't it, when you play the band? People actually are more quiet. I know. Because they, 
there's I guess there's more people on stage and they kind of feel like they can they can't ignore mm. you. <laughs> so people are more quieter than they would be if there was just one one person. Yeah. It's weird that. Yeah. So Songs to Swim To came out in 2011 and that was a comp wasn't a compilation but it was like a collection of tracks that were yeah. recorded at quite different times. Right? So I think all the sort of demos or CDRs that I'd made just chose all the tracks that I thought were the standout of many, many releases mm. and released them as Monogonon. Right. And yeah, it was it was a great recording, I think, like the quality of the recording, like the mics and the the way the drums were recorded, I think it was just very well recorded. But it was was a lot of it done in one session then, or was a lot of it done in uh, lots of different sessions. Of different so sessions. it wasn't like live. It was doing all the different tracks. So I, I think I did bass on that album. But the time frame in which it was recorded, it wasn't. Was it re-recordings of of a lot of? Yeah. Oh right. Oh right. Okay. Sorry. I thought some of mm. it was remixed versions or mm. tweaked. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah, from earlier. Totally days. re-recorded. What period of time was that recorded in? I think we did it in the month of May, two thousand ten. I think, and then Duncan was mixing it during June, and I went on an interrail <laughs> journey through Europe, right. <laughs> which is the reason why I ended up in Malmo. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> because I I met my the partner that. Invited, oh, whilst on that interrail trip. Yeah. All right. I'd known her for a long time, but we got together. <laughs> was Monogonon, in your eyes, you with a band, or is it...? I was really determined to make it a band, so I wanted to take my identity away from it. I wanted it to be... I wanted everyone to feel like they could, you know, be part of it. Yeah. You were the songwriter of all yeah. the songs. So I mean, there, that's, that's the problem. That's what I know now. <laughs> After years of toil to try and... I think it's hard to realise how much space you take up. You just think, oh, it's so easy. Come in, enjoy this space. Yeah. But for other people, it's, they've often got their own things going on. <laughs> <laughs> and so by family... The recording of that, which happened in the even shorter space of time, the initial recording session, mm. was a week. Is that right? Mm, five five days. <laughs> five days at the CCA in Glasgow mm. in 2012. Mm. And then you took it home with you to Malmo and, mm. and, and added extra stuff to it and layered upon, layered upon yeah. it. Yeah. And then and were mixing as you were going. Yeah. I was sort of learning how to mix as well. I was actually studying... Uh, Swedish language for immigrants right. so I managed to get a student's uh, discount on Pro Tools <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> with my basic language course So that's what you're using, using uh, Pro Tools for, the, yeah. for that record So I, I bought that and then started to learn how to mix and I remember like mixing for months and then after three months realising ah, that's what a compressor does <laughs> Right. It's the opposite of what I thought. <laughs> and then re- <laughs> remixing it. And then, yeah, it just it went on for a very long time. 
And it's a, such an expansive sounding record and there's so much going on in it where every time I listen to that album there's always there's another thing that I discover on it and I'm like, oh, there's mm. like a, a whole other layers that reveal themselves mm. as, the, as you get more familiar with the songs and oh, mm. it's incredible. I was so chuffed when, for that being the first record on the, on the label because mm. it was a real sort of statement of intent and it felt, for us, it felt mm. like something that was a real progression from the stuff I'd been releasing before on, on with Fence. With Family, we released that record with a cassette tape of recordings that you'd done completely on your own. Mm -hmm. And that started to maybe set off a new wave of how you were perceiving yourself as monogonon even. Mm -hmm. And there was a follow-up tape that happened a few months later. Mm -hmm. And now we find ourselves at Kilmans. I've, I've been pronouncing it Kilmans. Kilmans. Yeah. So, so I just went Kilmans. Kilmans. Kilmans original mustard. <laughs> yeah, it's a good brand name, Kilmans. I like but that. Kilmans. Yeah. Kilmans. But it's a Swedish Swedish word. It means uh, male period. So like <laughs> a man who's who's on his period. Kilmans. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually Kilmans. Kilmans. Just going to stop you there. What is a man's period? <laughs> well, there's quite a... There's quite a lot of prominent feminist artists and thinkers in Sweden. And I guess when I first got there, I was really awoken to sort of like feminism. And now that's in Britain, it feels like it became very mainstream ideas. But I guess when you first hear these ideas, there's a sort of denial that's in the beginning. And then you start to realize there's the logic and the, the arguments behind it. But anyway, there's a prominent feminist artist who said that if guys had a period, it wouldn't be a disgusting thing. It would be this artistic, like, you know, I'm on my period. Right, yeah. I, I need to go to the cabin. <laughs> you, know, you know, like, it would be this genial period of reflection. And so, like, I just, I think it's very funny to to diminish all the songs that I'm writing about emotion to be to be just being about a guy who's is seeing himself as very important <laughs> <laughs> we've been discussing the release of this record and about it happening on international men's day yeah. which when you suggested it <laughs> i thought it was just <laughs> surreal but now actually seems to make quite a bit of sense yeah I, I like toying with a lot of these like awkward ideas you know these conspiracy theorists and the the men's rights activists and I don't think they're I don't think they're stupid people I think they they just get caught up or something they they can't get over it it's like a form of denial like a denial of the way the world is it's like if you break one part of the reality then their whole reality falls so they just have to build up this fortress around themselves convince and, themselves that they're yeah. in the absolute right i think there's a great number of people who abstract ideas so the whole idea of the white male in abstract is just they don't take it in abstract they just see it as directed at them Personally, mm. so they have to build up the fortress 
I almost wonder if if I grew up, if I was five years younger, I wonder how I would have reacted. You know, maybe I was very lucky having moved to Sweden and when it, you know, when it wasn't Hillary versus Trump, when everything was just so polarised and black or white, you know, I wonder how I would have reacted as a younger white, a younger white boy. <laughs> so John's been in the Sweeney's Bothy all this past week recording. How have you found that? How have you found that experience being up there? Was it what you expected? It was and it wasn't. So I expected to be more isolated, but when I got there, I realised that I didn't I really wanted human contact, <laughs> which I didn't, I didn't expect at all. I thought, oh yeah, great, a week to just work and work. And then as soon as I get a chance to go out and maybe converse with another human, I would just jump at that chance. I've been thinking a lot about the writer Murakami. I can never remember his name to say it right. But he wrote this book called Kafka on the Shore. And there's some amazing sections of it about, about isolation and embracing it. And the protagonist like runs off into the woods and lies. He runs into the woods, a really dense forest, intentionally to get himself lost, so that he can feel the the terrifying fear of being lost. Sometimes at night, when I've been, you know, it's about to go to bed and go out in the darkness could kind of feel that to some extent that sort of human loneliness that's uh, I've been thinking maybe it's kind of important to feel that and to realise how much we need human contact to stay healthy but I I was definitely inspired by it I think like those sections of that book just came maybe when I was reading it I wasn't really affected by what I was reading about being lost and uh, embracing isolation but in some way I definitely felt inspired by the embracing those feelings and trying to kind of hold on to them and to use in the rest of life <laughs> Did it work its way into the music? Yeah, totally That is some of the only lyrical content that I made was just, you know, scribbling about human contact and I was also thinking about silence because it is very quiet but when you go outside it's never really silent there is always something there's always animal sounds or I find that here in my own experience that if I do go out and it's silent or it's quiet I'm, I'm actually actively listening for sounds as opposed mm. to sounds happening to mm. me which is should be what it would be anywhere else, you know. Whenever I've been like recording, if I was recording down at Adams in London, sound happens to you. Mm. Whereas here, you have to kind of actually find the sound a mm. little bit. You kind of actually have to listen for what's happening. Yeah, it's silent at first, and then after a while, you're like, no, it's it's never silent. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, that was Monogonon. What a nice guy, eh? What a lovely fellow, what a very thoughtful chap. And like I said earlier on, what a lovely voice, eh? Very soothing. You're welcome. That was the first interview we conducted for the Visitations Project, and it's done. Yes! It took us, it basically took us a year. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh, that interview was recorded in late July 2017 when John was on the island uh, doing the project and I'll be recording another interview with him later on today via Skype which will be in our next episode and in that episode we're going to be discussing his time on the island if he can remember any of it and uh, we'll be discussing uh, the creative process and listening to the music that he made and let me tell you, when he, when I received the tracks that he'd made whilst on the island, it completely changed my perspective on what the project should be. Um, and it was, it's, it's unlike anything we've released before. It's really amazing and I can't wait for you to hear it. If you enjoyed our chat um, and you want to hear John's music in full, the best way of supporting this podcast and the entire project is by subscribing to Visitations. Visitations. Because that's the name of the project. Uh, If you go to lostmap.com forward slash visitations, that'll have all the information you need. Uh, In the first series of Visitations, there's three different artists taking part. So Monogonon's the first one, and there's going to be two other ones over the course of the year. If you want to support us, you can choose to either subscribe physically or digitally. If you sign up to the physical subscription, you'll receive all three EPs recorded by the artists in the first series on 12-inch vinyl uh, as and when they're released over the course of the next six months. We're going to be staggering the releases. The music's all been mastered by uh, Stephen Ward, who is a Glasgow-based engineer and uh, sound expert extraordinaire. He's done a lot of mastering for us in the past and he's very thorough very thorough and it sounds incredible the music itself the 12 inch is housed in a customized super glossy sleeve which has been designed by our in-house designer david galtley and this sleeve is so super glossy it's really uh, i'm trying to think how to describe it if you have a kebab and you're sort of eating the kebab over it and a bit of sauce spills out onto the sleeve you can get rid of that sauce with just one wipe that is how super glossy it is um and there's gonna be some artwork inside uh the sleeve as well which will have um it'll be a collection of artwork taken by the artist so photographs drawings doodles diary entries and stuff uh physical subscribers will also receive a cd copy of all the music recorded which will include some exclusive tracks in some cases and uh, there's also going to be a postcard which will have a download code that allows folk to download everything imaginable. The audio, the podcasts, unedited, extended interviews, photos, nude pics, not nude pics, uh, basically everything to do with the project for that release. Um, the physical subscription is going to start at £33 plus postage for Series 1. And yeah, you can find out more about that on the website. If you don't want to have a physical thing, there is another option. There's a digital subscription, which basically, I'm sure you can imagine what that is. It's basically all the digital stuff. So all the music, podcasts as well, and photographs and all that sort of stuff in one sort of downloadable folder. And that is 20 quid. 
uh, both subscribers, the physical and digital subscribers, uh, will be signed up to an exclusive mailing list that will give uh, more information on everything. But also, you're going to be basically part of a, a special sect. We want to th- reward you for <laughs> investing in Lost Map. And so you'll get first dibs on all of our sort of events like Howlin' Fling and uh, Strange Invitation and all the other sort of Lost Map stuff. And you'll get major discounts on... Major discounts on... Uh, yeah, all the releases, that, other releases that we've got coming up, and we're gonna take care of you. If you subscribe, we're gonna we're gonna look after you. We're gonna treat you so good. You're gonna love us. I tell you who we love is the this list of people that I have to look at. I'd like to give a lot of love and thanks to Creative Scotland who helped support this project with the lottery funding. A special thanks to um, Alan Morrison who gave a lot of guidance uh, to us. That was really helpful. Um, big love and thanks to Joe Cormack who produced and edited this podcast very lovingly. He did a lot of jingles that you'll have heard throughout the podcast. That's Joe. Good old Joe. Uh, thanks to Lucy Conway and Bobby Niven from The Bothy Project for use of Sweeney's Bothy, which is where the artist stayed. And yeah, thanks to you. Thanks to you for listening so far. Um, I'm going to leave you now with a little excerpt of uh, John's music. This is a track called Visitations Number 3. The full track is like 11 minutes long. I told you it's unlike anything we've done before. It's bonkers. But I'll play you a little excerpt just now just to trail off the end of this episode. And um, yeah, join us for the next episode of the Lost Map podcast, which should be coming soon-ish. Yeah, I'm Pictish Trail. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>